We all have questions about the Bible. At Milwaukee Chi Alpha, we want to take the questions we have about the Old Testament and use them to get us closer to Jesus and what we're calling the XA Learning Hour. And we strongly believe that if God is real, if what we believe is true, our questions will lead us back to Him. So let's start this journey in the XA Learning Hour, questioning the Old Testament. This week, so we're laying the foundation for all the other weeks for the Old Testament, and there's a lot of info here, so um, it has been a lot of time pulling all of this together, but I'm really excited. A lot of this is gonna be very like content heavy today because of all this stuff we wanna cover. So we're gonna read 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through 17. So this is Paul, he's wrapping up his letter to 1 Timothy. So his last year, one of the books of the Bible. Yes. Hold on, this is First Timothy three. Oh, maybe I said. Hold on, I don't. That's not right. Second <laughs> Timothy three. Second Timothy three fourteen through seventeen. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you have learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Awesome. Thank you. So the verse, the verses I really want to look at here are verses 16 and 17. So all scripture is God-breathed. Another word for this being inspired. And we see also it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Like, awesome. It's applicable. We'll look at how, but nice to see that in there and equips us for every good work. But this idea in 16, all scripture is God-breathed. So essentially, what it means is that God prompted and guided people like Paul, like Moses, as they wrote the Bible. He inspired them. It is his words through them. So some misconceptions about scripture being inspired it doesn't mean that God wrote it with his own hand. It also doesn't mean that he dictated every word to Paul and Moses. So he didn't say, okay, okay, Jeff, write this down. Nope, change that word. Like he, that's not, that is not what inspired means. Inspired means he prompted and guided. He guided Jeff, and, well, not Jeff, Paul, and corrected <laughs> Paul as he was writing. Jeff, I didn't know you were an apostle. Yeah, right? Uh, I was involved. Neither did I. Just kidding. Um, but some other things to note. God used imperfect people to write his word. And that's awesome. He used regular, imperfect people. If you read some of the stories of their lives, they did some pretty awful stuff, and God used them to write his word. He also used... 40 people, forget my accent, four zero people, 40 people, over 1,500 years from different cultures and different backgrounds and different locations to write the Bible. And yet, the same message throws through, flows throughout, which is really cool, and we're going to come back to that. So, we, so um, we're not going to talk a ton about how the Bible was pulled together. But um, we're happy to answer any questions or discuss that another time or dedicate another week if people really want to know. But a lot of church fathers came together to determine which books were considered inspired. They discussed it. They prayed over it. Um, many of the books were readily accepted as scripture. 
And there was councils where people discussed and prayed over which books should be considered canonical or inspired by God. And that is how we got these 66 books put together. For the other books that weren't accepted as canon, they're still considered history. They can still be good reference, but we don't consider them to be inspired scripture. And there's a difference. There's a difference between historical documents, which may be helpful, and scripture. So commentary. We love commentary. Commentary is not scripture. It's not inspired by God in the way that scripture is. Um, Another thing to note, while there are very few discrepancies between different manuscripts, because these scriptures are thousands of years old. We do not have the original manuscript of any of them. We have some incredibly, incredibly old manuscripts and lots of, they're regularly, semi-regularly discovering, I don't know how often, but over the years they have discovered many more manuscripts. And as they compare these manuscripts, there are very few discrepancies between them, which is a pretty awesome thing when you consider how old it is. But even these small discrepancies between manuscripts doesn't take away from the inspired aspect of the Bible. Um, as we talked about, being inspired does not mean it means it wasn't dictated. And because of that, you can hear the author's voice coming through the text, which is really awesome and cool and at times is very helpful as we determine what is the author trying to say here because we can become familiar with Paul's writings, for example, because he wrote a lot of the New Testament. Um, and lastly, none of this discredits the Bible. I think sometimes we kind of wish that the Bible was Jesus told this person to write these exact words and it was handed down. Um, and clearly that's not how it works, but all of this, all of this that we're looking at doesn't at all discredit the Bible. It makes it more beautiful that God, while he could have written it himself perfectly, chose to use people, messy, broken people, and we have the privilege to look into it and dig into it more. Um, any questions on any of that, on it being inspired, on yeah, what that means or anything? If you want to read further about the accuracy of all these manuscripts, Google Daniel Wallace on YouTube, or go to YouTube, Daniel Wallace and textual criticism, and you'll be blown away by the accuracy of it all. Yeah, this is, we are like scratching the surface. We're just kind of like hitting all the bullet points that need to be discussed, and we're happy to discuss them further. Our whole talk for this semester is called Questioning the Old Testament, and I think we need to establish that it's okay to question the Bible. I think a lot of times we're afraid to, or we're afraid that if we question, it means we're doubting and all this stuff. Like, it's okay to question the Bible. I don't know how you read through the Bible or read through portions of the Old Testament without questioning what's going on. For example, God telling Abraham to sacrifice his son. What? <laughs> like, we probably should have some questions there. In the end, clearly Abraham didn't do it, but like, I think there's some questions that we can ask there. And we strongly believe that if God is real, if what we believe is true, our questions will lead us back to him. It's like we are not afraid of questions. We love questions. We welcome questions. And God is big enough to defend himself. God is big enough for our questions. And I want to read a qu quote from um, Peter Gregg, author of God on Mute. 
it's a great book discussing when life is really hard and prayers go unanswered and how we deal with that. I highly recommend the book. But after attending a funeral um, where they were singing, you know, songs and about how great God is and wanting to celebrate the life that this guy had, he saw this guy's daughter sitting on the front row, brokenhearted, and he wrote after that, in spite of all the singing, dancing, and detailed assurances, or, beca- or perhaps because of them, I drove away later thinking how very fragile our faith must be if we can't just remain sad, scared, confused, and doubting for a while. In our fear of unknowing, we leapfrog Holy Saturday and rush the resurrection. We race disconcerted to make meaning and find beauty where there simply is none yet. So a Holy Saturday is the day between Good Friday, where Jesus died, and Easter Sunday, where he rose again. So Holy Saturday would have been this devastating day where the disciples thought everything was completely over and they mourned and Jesus was in the grave. Like, talk about saddest day in human history. And so I love this line. I drove away later thinking how very fragile our faith must be if we can't just remain sad, scared, confused, and doubting for a while. And our faith, what we believe, is strong enough to handle the questions. Strong enough to let us doubt, and God is big enough for that. So again, the Bible, including the Old Testament, is the inspired word of God, or God's inspired word to people. And we have talked about this inspired word word of God element, um, but now I want to talk about this people element. God's inspired word to people. Who are these people? Who was the Bible written to and when? And really, the answer is it depends. Because the Bible was written to a whole bunch of different people. Again, a ton of people wrote it over 1,500 years in lots of different cultures. So it was written to a lot of different people in different times and different places and cultures. And if that stresses you out, it's okay. Because it's actually really awesome that that's the case. The Old Testament itself, because that's what we're going to be looking at, though today we're going to look at both a little bit. The Old Testament was largely written to the Israelites. So the first five books were traditionally written by Moses, written to the Israelites after they were released from slavery and learning to become an independent people. And the rest of the Old Testament was written at different times throughout their history, again, primarily to the Israelites. So you have prophets, you have psalms and proverbs and all of those the new testament on the other hand um, as has been mentioned was mostly letters so even the gospels which were written as an account of what jesus did were written as letters luke starts his book addressing theopolis like the gospels were written as letters so each gospel writer matthew mark luke and john has a different audience in mind And on top of that, because I think like that's not too hard for us to grasp, but on top of that, each gospel writer had a different point that they were trying to get across. So they weren't just trying to write down what Jesus did as accurately as possible. They had different points in mind. So Matthew, for example, was written to Jews. And Matthew was intending to show Jewish people that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That was his whole point. If you got nothing else out of Matthew, 
He wanted Jews to know that Jesus was fulfilling the Old Testament. And because of that, Matthew is full of quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes the Old Testament constantly saying, this is how Jesus fulfilled that. Luke, on the other hand, was probably written to Gentiles. So Gentiles, people who were not Jews, people who did not grow up with these scriptures in the same way. And because of that, a lot of Luke's stories include those who are not considered elite. Like he intentionally will give a story that relates to men and then a story that relates to women. He's intentionally including people. His book, his stories include Samaritans, include people outside of Jewish culture because he's writing to people who maybe feel second class when it comes to Judaism or Christianity. And let's just, we're going to pause here for a minute. Um, if you have no, if you have read, if you have ever read the same story in multiple gospels, anyone ever done that? Like compared story to story in the New Testament and the gospels? Yeah, a couple people. Well, if you've done that, you will have noticed <laughs> that the stories are different in different gospels. For example, Judas, after he, betray- I don't know why this is the story that I chose, but Judas, after he betrays Jesus, in one gospel, it says he hung himself. In another gospel, it says he fell in a field and birds came and ate his, or dogs or God something. Yeah, his gut spilled out. We have two, I know, right? Great, there's some great stuff in the Bible. Yes. Oh, yes. It is very. Yeah. 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 We could point you to some books. Thank you. But um, yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Judges in the Old Testament is full of some messed up stuff. Very messed up stuff. Um, Okay, so you have these two different accounts of how Judas died, and it's really easy for us to look at that and be like, why are they different? Why are they different? Does this mean? Does some? Who got it wrong? Who's right and who's wrong? But that is a very Western way of looking at it. That is very much how we look at it. Because um, these quote-unquote inconsistencies are not because somebody was mistaken or wrong or because they didn't remember quickly, but because the authors had different points in mind. Because this can be really hard for us to grasp because we are very Western and we think very linear, we think very Western, we think accuracy, where Eastern minds think very different. They think in stories, they think in parables, or at least like ancient, ancient day. But they are, um, the authors here were not trying to tell us how things happened. They were focused on what happened and why. The authors were less focused on how it happened and more focused on what happened and why. So another example of this is creation. You have Genesis 1 and 2. We're going to talk about this more next week, so come next week and hear um, us discuss creation. I think Jeff's teaching that one. But in 1 and 2, you have different accounts of creation. And it's kind of like, why? Which one's right? The original readers of Genesis couldn't care less which one was right as far as the details goes. They were much more concerned with what happened, that God created the world, and why he created the world. And again, come back next week to hear the answers to those questions. (laughs) 
Yeah, so they're different focuses. Um, and we will probably come back to this many times over the next few weeks. Um, but again, the, mess, the rest of the New Testament um, is mostly lessers. You have Romans, the Corinthians, Hebrews. They're all writing to specific people. And this is important. We see this in the Old Testament too. You're writing to specific audiences. Um, and this is important because if I wrote a letter to Caitlin and Nathan, you try read it. Oh, I just totally lost. Oh, yeah. You can learn a lot, but you also have to remember, like, I'm writing to Caitlin. I'm not writing to you. And so, like, you can learn, but you have to, like, first see what was I trying, what did it mean to Caitlin before you can understand what it means to you. And that is how we look at Scripture. Scripture is 100% relevant to us, but we understand it better when we understand first what it meant to the original audience. So while Paul was writing letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy, for example, to Timothy, Paul knew, and God knew, God knew that we would be reading it at some point and learning from it centuries later. And he inspired it so that we could. But we understand 1st and 2nd Timothy better if we understand first how Timothy would have received it. So we were never the intended audience of the Old Testament, but it doesn't make it any less relevant to us. And in some ways, it makes it more beautiful because um, it does mean that we need to understand the original context, and in doing so, we can better understand its application. And there are some great resources for this, which we can talk about in a little bit. Actually, a lot of the resources I pulled from the Bible Project, um, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, and some other commentaries as well are great. Um, but again, the Bible, while very relevant to us, we understand it better when we understand what it meant to the original audience. And it's so much more beautiful when we understand what it meant to the original audience. Because so many of the misconceptions of the Old Testament come from us not understanding the original intent. And it's important to remember the Bible can never mean to us what it didn't mean to them. The Bible cannot mean to us what it didn't mean to them. We have to understand what it meant originally in their culture and context. So we're going to jump a little bit more into cultural context, but any questions off of all of this? Because I know we're just kind of like flying through stuff. Great. Okay, cultural context. I don't, know, I don't know if you guys are like, this is so awesome, let's keep going. If you're like, I'm so overwhelmed, I don't even know where to start with my questions, but we're going to keep going. <laughs> cultural context. We've established the Bible wasn't written to us. Um, I think you're aware of this. The Bible was also not written in the 21st century. <gasps> you're kidding. And it wasn't written in America. <gasps> or to Americans. <gasps> <laughs> I love the energy of them. Right? <laughs> it was written to people in a context that is very different from us. So, again, this does not mean that we cannot learn. We can 100% learn. You can read the Christmas story and see the beauty of God coming to earth as a baby, even without understanding historical context. Like, Jesus will 100% speak through his word, even if you don't understand cultural context. The beautiful thing is, because, like, we, we have so much access to cultural context, to commentaries, all this stuff. There are people who don't, and God still speaks to them through his word. So please hear me. God is God. He will speak. Um, however, we have access to a lot of the historical context. 
and we're constantly learning more, which is actually kind of fun seeing it develop. But okay, looking at looking at the story of Jesus's birth, because it's probably a story you're mostly familiar with. And again, God can speak through that. You can understand the beauty of that story without cultural context. But let's look at just a tiny bit of cultural context here. Who did the angels appear to in a field in the Christmas story? Shepherds. Okay, so so for us, like we may or may not be familiar with shepherds. Um, you know, we know they probably work with sheep. That's probably a good guess. <laughs> Jesus is referred to as a good shepherd, so like that seems like a, a, a cool thing. You've probably heard before that sheep are stupid. That's a bit of cultural context, I guess. Um, and that's kind of like our frame of reference. And maybe many of you know this, um, but as you look into the historical context in this time, you would find that shepherds have a really awful reputation. <laughs> like, they had a really rat- bad reputation. They smelled bad. Ironically, I said they spelled bad, which is just funny because I spelled that very poorly. Um, they smelled bad, so think like sheep poop. They smelled bad. They're like sleeping out in the fields with sheep. Um, They were the lowest of the low. And they were not at all considered trustworthy to the point that their testimony was not, would not be accepted in a court of law. (laughs) Shepherds were considered so untrustworthy and unreliable that their testimony would not be considered in a court of law. And so how much more beautiful this story is. It was beautiful already when we knew that Jesus came as a baby and the shepherds were like really excited and the angels were singing glory to God and joy to all humanity. But how much beautiful it is when we realize that the angel appeared to the worst of the worst and essentially said, I want you to be the first to know about the Messiah. And I want you to be the first to spread the news. Like, you know, you see what I mean? Like the historical context doesn't change the story, but it adds so much more depth and beauty to the story we already love. See, my only thing is with that is if they were so untrustworthy and the angels did tell them to like spread the news, mm-hmm. wouldn't people not believe them because they are so untrustworthy? And probably not. Probably a lot of people didn't believe them. But like that, that's the beautiful thing. When you understand the historical context, you see over and over again that God doesn't care about our standards. God doesn't care when we say, you're the best and you're eh. like, God says, screw that. We're going to flip it. Like, uh, but how much cooler the story is when we realize that like God doesn't care that the world thinks shepherds are crappy, literally and figuratively. <laughs> like God says, you are valuable to me. And I'm going to send you as the first people to tell about the birth of the Savior. It's the same. Who were the first people at the tomb when Jesus rose from the dead? Women. Women. Who, again, their testimony would not have been considered reliable in the court of law. And to your point, they run and they say to the disciples, Jesus has rose again. And the disciples don't believe them. Sexist people. Well, you know. But that's the cool thing, that God said, I don't care that you don't believe women. I'm going to empower women to be the first witnesses of the resurrection. I never noticed that before. Yeah. And that is the beauty of historical context. It doesn't change the story. Jesus can speak even without it. But it just brings so much depth and beauty. So I want to look at an example in the Old Testament. And we're not going to read this because it's like six chapters. Um, but we're going to turn to Judges chapter 3. 
This is um, maybe or probably definitely my it's in the Old Testament. Yeah, my favorite story <laughs> in the Old Testament. So Judges chapter three, the story of Ehud. Okay, so you have the Israelites. They were evil in the sight of the Lord, and because they did evil, the king of Moab took control, all this stuff. So Ehud is the one that God chooses to set the people free. So Ehud is a left-handed man, and the story goes, he goes into, he goes to deliver a message. He goes in to deliver the message to the king in private. He pulls out his sword, rams it through the king's belly. It very graphically describes the belly and closing over the shaft of the sword, and the people are free. <laughs> In a nutshell. He was a very fat man. The following story is Deborah. Anyone know the story of Deborah? It's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> you should read this later and then ask Caitlin all of your I questions. Because So the story of Deborah. Deborah was a judge, so like leader, prophet of over Israel. And she says to this guy, Go set the people free. This is again later, they're now in captive again. And the guy says, I'm scared, come with me. And she says, sure, I'll come with you, but now the king will be turned over to the hand of a woman. And it's not even Deborah, it's some other lady, I don't even remember her name. Jail. Jail, thank you. She invites the king into her tent, says, I will hide you. And then while he's sleeping, rams a tent peg through his temple. Girl power. <laughs> Girl power. Girl power. So then, in chapter 6... <laughs> you are always invited everywhere. Yeah. Chapter 6 is Gideon. So Gideon, they are imprisoned again, or imprisoned, enslaved, whatever, by the Midianites. And Gideon is hiding. He's threshing wheat in a wine press. Like, you don't thresh wheat in a wine press. You make wine in a wine press. So he's clearly hiding. And um, God says, I'm going to use you. And a lot of really cool things with 300 men... They, he sets Israel free. So we look at this from our perspective, and we're like, these are great stories, very graphic. Like, okay, great, God set people free. The people keep messing up. They keep going into exile, and then God sends somebody to let them free. But cultural context, cultural context for these passages tell us that left-handed people were considered cursed and looked down upon. Women were also not valued highly, and Gideon wasn't valued highly. He was, um, it says he was the least in his family, the least in his tribe, and he was clearly afraid because he's threshing wheat in a wine press. So we look at these as entertaining graphic stories of God setting people free. The original readers would have read this and say, said, wow, not only did God set his people free, he used people that I would have considered not worth using. Again, how much beauty the context brings to these stories. And how cool, too, that God was speaking through their context. So again, if this is all like kind of blowing your mind or tripping you up, that's okay. We're going to talk a lot about context in the next, this whole time. Context will come up over and over again. But how cool that God works through their context. But I want to look quickly at the story in Luke chapter 15, starting verse 11. 
Starting verse 11, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for a son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And the story continues, but we're going to stop here for our point. So I want you to specifically look at verses 13 through 16. We would say, because we are Western, because we are American, if anyone had a different thought, um, I'd be very interested to hear it. Um, but we would say he squandered his wealth in wild living. And in fact, most people in Western cultures would say the same thing because we come from an innocent and guilt culture. We value personal responsibility. It's his fault. He squandered his wealth. That's what we see. But there are three major culture groupings around the world. So we are guilt innocence. There's also power fear culture and honor shame culture. And a power fear culture would have skipped over the squandering his wealth and would have said, there was a severe famine. In verse 14, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. And if power, fear, culture would have said, there was a severe famine, and that's why. And an honor, shame culture would have looked at this and would have looked at verse 16 and said it was because no one gave him anything. Verse 16, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And it's important to realize here, like, none of these are wrong. Like, none of these, are, like, if you said one and not the other, that's not wrong. All three of them contributed. Like, to say that he squandered his wealth is absolutely true. It's right there. But the cool thing is that Jesus spoke, God spoke, through this author, through Luke, and addressed all three of the major cultures that we see in our world. Because Luke would have been writing to an honor-shame culture. He would have been writing to people who saw this and said nobody helped him. And yet, and the author probably wouldn't have even been aware of the other cultures. And yet, God inspired Luke to include all three. Because they each speak to a different major culture within our world. The Bible is inspired. And just because we don't understand the context, just because we are in a different time and we are not the original audience, it does not mean that it's not relevant to us.
Okay, the last part of the context is writing style, and we're just going to hit this for like 30 seconds. <laughs> the authors of the Bible, as we've established, did not sit down and say, let's write the Bible. And because of that, different parts, different books of the Bible, this is why it's so important, like the note that it's made up of lots of different books is so important. Because different books are written in different genres. So this includes law. It includes history, it includes prophecy, it includes letters and wisdom literature and even apocalyptic literature. And all of these kinds of literature are read differently. And we do this without thinking with our own culture. We don't read poetry the same way that we read history. We don't even read poetry the same way we read like a novel. We read them differently. And we know that instinctively. Like we don't even have to like we, we just know that. And it is the same with the Bible. It is all true. It is all the word of God. With that, it is written in different styles. And when we understand the Bible, when we understand the styles it is written in, we can better understand. And there's a bit of a language barrier there because, you know, we, we don't speak Greek or Hebrew. We don't read either. Um, but we, and writing styles have shifted a little bit. But looking at what kind of writing, what genre the writing fits in, changes how we see and read it. And we'll talk more about this over the coming weeks. Um, but I want to look at purpose quickly. The purpose of the Bible as a whole and the Old Testament. Because as it's been established, the Bible is lots of little stories. But it is also God's story of creating and rescuing humanity. And the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament points to Jesus. They are looking forward to the, just like we look back to Jesus, they are looking forward to the Messiah. Who is Jesus? So they didn't know it yet. The whole Old Testament is all pointing to Jesus. And the story of humanity can be summed up creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, created people, created everything, the world was perfect, and in Genesis 3, it didn't take very long, Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, and we fell. I say we, because like, yeah, we can blame them, but none of us are doing much better. <laughs> and chapter 3 is a fall. And Jesus came bringing redemption, and restoration is in the process of happening and in the future at the same time. And we see these first two elements in the Old Testament, the creation and fall. For God created a perfect world that is quickly destroyed. And we see in the Old Testament God setting up a covenant with Abraham and his descendants. So Israel, he sets up a covenant with Israel that is broken over and over and over again. But he sets up this covenant where Israel is supposed to be set apart, a nation that points people towards God, fulfilling his mission, loving the world. And when that covenant is broken over and over and over again, the whole Old Testament points to the coming Messiah that will be for the fulfillment of that covenant. We should do one week just on Abraham's covenant because that is like the most mind-blowing thing. But that is what the Old Testament is. Um, and I want to really quickly, I want you all to look at this picture for a minute and just think, think for a minute how you would describe this picture. So you said relaxing. Yeah? 
Anything else? Anyone else? Edenic. Magical forest. Magical. Mystical. Meander. Yeah, I was mm -hmm. thinking something like journey into like mm -hmm. a ethereal mist, mist mm -hmm. and fog. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Like beautiful forest. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, well, I have actually not, I've done this a few times and I've never had this happen where you guys like the way you're describing it all fits together. Normally when I show a picture like that, I get lots of different perspectives on it. So that a little bit ruins you would remember when I did this a few years ago in the sermon. Oh, yeah. Okay. So normally, <laughs> normally when I show this picture, a picture like this, and show it to a group of people, people describe it differently. Some people are like, it's relaxing. Some people say it's creepy. But people see it. People, we, we all look. The point still stands. We can all look at a picture. We can all look at a story. We can look at events. And we describe it differently. And I mean, how cool. What, sorry? I mean, it could be, like, for some people that could be viewed scary because I know like if I were answering that question like a few years ago I'd say mm -hmm. that's scary yeah because like as somebody who's interested in like true crime and stuff seeing mm -hmm. that kind of stuff doesn't mm -hmm. it doesn't face yep. me anymore but it would have back then yeah for sure that's why I said spell oh I spell yeah 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 going on in there. okay so we have a bit of variety we have a bit of variety here but generally, you show a picture, you show um, a picture to 100 different people or even 40 different people from different backgrounds, different cultures, people are going to describe and see that picture or that event differently. And with that being the case, how cool it is that the Bible, the themes of the Bible, all flow together so well. That with so many different people and so many different cultures influencing the Bible and the Old Testament, that it still all flows together in such a beautiful way. I think that also has to do with the way it's arranged. Like, I definitely think that there's some stories that can't go after others. Yeah? I think to some extent, but I still think even, even with it being arranged, even with people coming in and arranging it in certain ways, the fact that everything still points to Jesus, the fact that so many authors came together to tell the story, not even intending to tell the story together, just reinforces this idea that the Bible is inspired and is true. So it leads the question, I think the last question, um, of what does this mean for us reading the Bible? And what do you guys think? What is, with all this information, what does this mean for us as we read the Bible? I don't know everything. Yeah, yeah there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Like what you said, like you have to be able to see it through somebody else's mm -hmm. eyes to truly understand. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, anyone else? I think a point you made in here, maybe you can say this uh, We don't know everything, as Rachel mm -hmm. said. We don't know everything, but you said we have so many tools today 
to mm -hmm. help us. Like, yeah. this, is, this is knowable, even though it's not our culture anymore. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that's something else yeah, that for sure. we can discuss this mm -hmm. with the knowledge that we don't know yeah. at all. And collaboration. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. <laughs> and I want to add to that, that we get to see the beauty in this book. Like, the beauty in this book for what it is, and that we get to discover it and discover God speaking through us. Like, how cool this is. Jewish rabbis often just sit around and discuss. They don't even need to come to consensus. They discuss because they love discussing and discovering. I mean, for them, it's not the whole, they don't really like the New Testament as much as we do. Um, but you know what I mean, like there's their scriptures. Um, and how beautiful it is that we can learn and that we can see scripture come alive for us. And the fact that we can do this together, mm -hmm. that we can do this together. And as the word is inspired by Jesus, that Jesus and the Holy Spirit also guide us as we read the scripture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for, um, yeah, coming and listening to all this information. We are always here to talk about this more or dig into this more. Mm -hmm. um, and if, as you're hearing this, you kind of feel like you're having a bit of a crisis of faith or like, what the heck do I do with this? Come talk to us because that's, that's okay. Like, we're excited to go through this together. And next week, Jeff will be teaching on creation and looking at that and do biblical and scientific accounts yeah. um, and do do scientific and biblical accounts of creation work together or do they clash so join us next week for that and then the following week will be who is god in the bible and the old testament who is god in the old testament that's If you want to be with us live for the XA Learning Hour, come to the UWM Student Union, room W145 at 1.30 on Thursdays. Thanks for listening.